I did start asking a couple of my friends who I knew were churchgoers vaguely religious questions. I don't remember now what they were, but I was sort of like, oh, well, like, they must know some sort of things about this. And I remember the answers I got just being, like, utterly disappointing, shallow, like, not really knowing what I was talking about. And so fairly quickly, I had an association of, like, well, maybe Christians aren't people who think for themselves. Maybe they aren't people who know what they're talking about. Maybe it's just a thing that's sort of a crutch when you need something happy. Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we see how someone flips the record of their life from disbelief to belief in God. Each podcast, we listen to someone who has once been an atheist, but who, against all odds, became a Christian. Atheists are often avid readers intellectually driven and perceive religious belief as unworthy of consideration for the thinker. That is certainly part of today's story. Rachel attended Yale University to pursue deep thinking about ideas with other intellectuals who had also dismissed religious belief as simplistic and childish. But there's often more than merely an intellectual rejection of God. In my research with former atheists, many found belief in God as something not only not true, but also not attractive or relevant. That is, for many, it wouldn't fit in very well with their life or with the culture. It wouldn't fit in with their choices for how they wanted for themselves or others to live. Rachel wanted nothing to do with the seemingly antiquated morality of the Bible but rather embraced cultural and individual moral authority and sexual ethics instead. Nearly half of those whom I studied dismissed belief in God for this reason, among others. So, Christianity is often perceived as not only something not worthy of belief, it is also something that seems quite repugnant, something they would never even want, something that seems so out of step. What then would it take for someone like this to change their mind and life, their negative perceptions of God, Christianity, and the Bible, and completely turn and embrace what they once found repulsive? Well, each person is different, and every story is different. I hope you'll join me to hear Rachel's journey, to discover what allowed her to reconsider that which she once thought unthinkable and undesirable belief in Jesus, not only to reconsider it, but as someone who actually works full-time in ministry to help others know Jesus as well. I hope you'll stick around to the end, too, to hear Rachel's advice to skeptics towards becoming open to considering Jesus, God, and Christianity, and advice to Christians on how to best engage with those who are skeptical or searching. Rachel is an Ivy League educated published author, speaker with an advanced seminary degree. She has been married to Andrew for 12 years and they're raising their daughter in the northeastern part of the United States. Welcome to the Side B Podcast, Rachel. It's so great to have you with me today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. Wonderful. As we're getting started, why don't you 
tell me and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself before we get into your story. Yeah, well, I'm a uh, I'm a California sojourner in New England. I currently work for Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, on the National Theological Development and Culture Team. I write a little bit. I speak a little bit. I parent a seven year old a little bit. So you know, that's that's a little bit of where I am right now in life. And you're pursuing a PhD at the moment as well. Yeah, so I'm working on my PhD in public theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Well, maybe we'll we'll hear a little bit more about those bits and pieces as we go. But as we're starting with your story, you, as you know, uh, this podcast is talking with former atheists who found their way from atheism to Christianity, and sometimes that's quite a long journey right. uh, from one ideology to the other and one life to another, but it all starts somewhere. Uh, and I'd like to start uh, with your childhood to get us and your culture, your family, your community, just kind yeah. of how you grew up. Shape that for us. Tell us tell us how your journey or your story started. Was God in that story at all as a child? Yeah. It was a great question. I love context. I was a history major in college. So okay. <laughs> okay. These are my favorite context. Parts. Yes. Con- context context is, means context a lot. Context is a big one. Yeah. So the... The bigger context is my mother had grown up in a practicing Catholic household, but not really serious. She ditched it at a young age. So by the time she was raising me, there was nothing of that was in her life. She had really gone far away from Catholic doctrinal teaching, moral teaching, all of that. Uh, my dad similarly didn't have religion in his life when he was raising me. He had grown up non-church going at all, like poor in the hills of Appalachia. He had met some Jesus people along the way, he says, but there was just no faith in his life, uh, even as a young boy. So by the time my parents were bringing up my brother and I, we were just never in the church, not even like Christmas or Easter. It just wasn't a thing that was talked about. It wasn't a part of our fabric. Now, the community I grew up in uh, is north of Santa Barbara, California. And sometimes people hear California and think really, really liberal. And obviously that's true. But actually where I grew up was very rural, in a lot of ways, conservative. You know, my high school um, had a working farm on it and a place where you could tie up your horse, like that kind of rural, like the town it was in literally had one stoplight. And so I knew that a lot of people around me were churchgoers, but as a child, I didn't really know what that meant. It was just sort of a fact in people's lives that I never really thought about as a kid. So there was no childhood belief in God, no prayer. I nothing. Mean, you, there was <laughs> nothing in there to give no, you a context for that no. kind of belief at all. No. Um, so I did no- have some babysitters when I was a young girl who were Mormons. And I have a distinct memory of they had a picture on their wall, you know, of that like feather haired 1970s white Jesus who's staring softly into the middle distance. <laughs> yes. And I remember yes. sort of making fun of that picture and um, having like g- getting a time out for making fun of Jesus. So that was like my first real encounter with Jesus as a concept. <laughs> wow. All right. So that was a, your childhood. And so yeah. as you were getting older and going to school, still no cultural or contextual references, even like for Christmas or 
things like that. Well, Christmas I loved, but it was definitely that weird porridge of like Santa and Rudolph and baby Jesus and Frosty the Snowman. It's a little unclear what baby <laughs> Jesus had to do with any of it. Like, right. you know, it was just it was just the full-on tree presence commercialism type of thing. So, and Easter, like I got an Easter basket, but to me Easter was entirely a rabbit who laid eggs or a rabbit who carried eggs. It's like entirely unclear what exactly is going on there. Chocolate is heavily involved. The resurrection, <laughs> not even mentioned. <laughs> no, no. So no religious references at all to those holidays. No. So, no. Um, okay, take us forward a little bit. So you're, you're growing up um, in elementary school and, yeah. you know, middle school is a time where you start really looking around, questioning, and I imagine you would be a, a thoughtful, introspective kind of person, or you read that way. Why don't you tell us about who you were and if you were asking yeah. good questions or, I or do thinking have, about those things? I have a distinct memory of being in like the fourth grade and sitting up on top of a play structure, kind of looking down on the playground during a recess and trying to work out whether fate existed or not. You know, like is are my actions all determined beforehand? And if so, does that limit my freedom or do I actually have real freedom? And now looking back on that, I think, well, that's sort of a weird thing to be thinking about on the playground as a nine-year-old. But I do know that I've always been interested in big ideas. I actually, the summer after my eighth grade year, my grandfather, my mom's dad, so like a very not practicing Catholic, gave me a bunch of books to read to earn money. And I was really into this. And one of the books was I think it was popular in like the 1950s. It was called The Robe. It was a historical fiction about one of the centurions who was at the crucifixion of Jesus. And so I read this book just because grandpa assigned it. I remember reading it and thinking, this is a really interesting story. And at that point, this is right on the hinge towards high school, I did start asking a couple of my friends who I knew were churchgoers vaguely religious questions. I don't remember now what they were, but I was sort of like, oh, well, like they must know some sort of things about this. And I remember the answers I got just being like utterly disappointing, yeah. shallow, like not really knowing what I was talking about. And so fairly quickly, I had an association of like, well, maybe Christians aren't people who think for themselves. Maybe they aren't people who know what they're talking about. Maybe it's just a thing that's sort of a crutch when you need something happy. But at that point, my freshman year in high school, I wasn't necessarily thinking of that in like a cruel way or a dismissive way, but it was just where my interviews sort of led me. And I remember even being invited to uh, the Presbyterian Church, had a youth group, you know, on one of the weeknights and there was pizza and basketball. And so I would go because that's where other kids were. I remember often sitting in the back of the room during presentation time thinking, I don't understand why you need Jesus and God. So there was like a little bit of exposure, but my early exposures really only hardened me against it. If I could put it that way. It seemed rather nonsensical. It, and there was no one there to provide any kind of substantive answer or, or explanation for what it was or... Or yeah. anything like that. So you lost respect for it, essentially. Yeah, I did. I did lose respect for it. And over time in high school, I also lost respect for the Christians my age. So on the one hand, I started to think more and more. I think the big ideas 
deserve real answers, and I'm not seeing those in Christianity. The other thing that I was discovering about myself in high school, which was interesting based on the cultural change we've had, but I realized, gosh, the way that my peers feel about other young men really is how I feel about other young women. This was in 2001 when I first realized this, started having romantic and sexual relationships with other young women. You know, this is right before Texas struck down its sodomy law in 2003, right before Mm -hmm. Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage in 2004. So it was just a weird little hinge period as we were moving. But I, I was also like, well, I'm pretty sure that Christians hate gay people and I want to marry a woman someday. So not only is this intellectually disrespectable, is that the way to put it? Intellectually (laughs) silly, uh, but it's hateful for no reason. And I saw the kids who identified as Christians also at some of the parties that I went to doing Mm -hmm. some of the same stupid ethical things as me. I was like, well, at the end of the day, what really is this? It seems to be nothing. So it was a combination of a lot of things, it sounds like, that that really pushed you away from Christianity. It wasn't intellectually respectable, morally respectable, I presume, <laughs> and, right. and, and also those who believed were hypocritical. What was it pushing you towards? That's a great question. I really wanted to know what was true. I wanted, it's sort of like cliche, I guess, but sort of like the true, the good and the beautiful. I wanted to know what those things were. I took a lot of cues from culture, you know, the kind of things that you read and watch and listen to. But there were two high school teachers I had who both identified as atheists, which was kind of like um, cool in my little small cow town. And they were warm, nurturing, wonderful people. Mm. And people who took interest in me, who invested in me, who listened to me. And I really adored both of them. And so I think that having those type of role models who were so appealing um, also really helped me think about the fact that a life, a humanistic life, an atheistic life could be a life of virtue and, and goodness and of, and of true living. And obviously you respected them. They, they invested in you. Uh, did they provide, did you think the answers, those intellectual answers of, that you thought were true with regard to atheism? Were you reading? I don't, I don't think they were interested in providing me any types of answers. I think they were interested in just providing me a scaffolding for how to become a thinking person, mm. which I think is ultimately probably why I respected them. I wasn't necessarily even asking them the questions. I was looking to them as models for a way to live. So it was during high school, I presume, that yeah. you you took their role model and you embraced it as your own. Yeah, absolutely. And you would consider yourself an atheist in high school. Oh, definitely. By the time mm-hmm. I was a senior in high school, my senior year English teacher, who was one of these, was one of these teachers, um, I started affectionately turning in my English papers to her with instead of my name at the top, I just wrote the word Satan. Like we were jokingly, we were like, <laughs> I was I was not only an atheist. I was sort of um, at that point, I had turned to sort of aggressively picking on other Christians. Kind of antagonistic. 
uh, condescending. To put it that perhaps. way, condescending. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a little contemptuous. Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was a jerk, basically. And why do you suppose, or what do you think informed that sense of condescension or, or arrogance think- towards Christians? Part of it's a personality defect. I think I'm arrogant by disposition. And so if I don't have any moral check on it, that's the direction I'm going to go. I've heard my whole life that I'm very funny. And one of the things I can absolutely do quickly is decide to use that against people. Mm. And the obvious targets in my context were sort of this picture I had of dumb Christians, people who weren't thinking, that kind of thing. Mm. So you were you embraced the identity of not only yeah. same same sex attraction but also atheist and definitely and so that that identity moved you into college yeah uh, mm-hmm. so tell me and about I was that. really excited so you know again I was grew up in sort of an unimpressive place but I got into Yale which was really exciting for me I thought oh finally I'm going to be at a place where I can explore big ideas with like-minded people. Finally, I'm going to be in a place where I can give some elbow room to my sexuality a little more. I had never actually faced any persecution or anything like that related to my same-sex relationships, but it just, it wasn't a lot. (laughs) It wasn't a big market, exactly. (laughs) I was just like, I just want want to get to the broader world. So I was excited. I showed up in New Haven kind of ready and raring to go for sure. And what did you find there? Did you find those people who were willing to explore those big ideas? Did you find like-minded atheists? I found everybody who was smarter than me. <laughs> I, I imagine there are a lot everyone, of smart people at Yale. Everyone yeah. <laughs> who uh, had received better training or just naturally kind of further ahead than I was. But I did. I found people who were interesting and exciting and wanted to talk about this stuff and also just wanted to have fun. So you get assigned in groups each to your freshman counselor and they make you go to all these meetings at the beginning of the year so you can talk about things and we all just like to complain about it really. But I remember being in one of these freshman counselor meetings very early in my freshman year and my counselor was leading us through a conversation. He must have asked something like, um, What's your experience here been like so far? I'm not exactly sure what the question he asked was, but there was a classmate of mine, a young man, who responded, you know, I get the I get the sense that a lot of people think that faith or religion is like only for stupid people. And I don't think that's true at all. He was clearly speaking from some sort of faith perspective. And he offered that up. And our my first response was like, Yeah, well, you're wrong. And my freshman counselor was like, Yeah, can't you believe how silly and ignorant that is? So I remember being like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, is that not a thing? Is that not a thing we're supposed to think? So that was a weird first little entry point into having my assumption that religion was for idiots (laughs) questioned. Now, Mm. over the course of my time in Yale, I absolutely encountered like anti-Christian, anti-religious sort of condescension or bias of these types of things. I'm not trying to say that it was this like beautiful and only open and affirming type of environment for people of faith, but that moment was really important for me. And there was more toleration and more encouragement of free exchange of thoughts than I think is sometimes portrayed of campus life in places like that. 
I'd like to pause for a moment and ask you a favor. If you're enjoying the Side B podcast or find these stories helpful, would you please leave us a review and rating wherever you download these episodes? Your feedback helps other people find these stories, and we genuinely appreciate your support. Now back to our story. So this was a an intellectual place, but obviously everyone yeah. didn't have the same worldview or ideology. Yeah. Because these are thinking people and and were willing to explore ideas, did they really explore those who were naturalistic or atheistic or materialistic in their understanding of the world? Did they explore those, do you think, in depth that looked at the implications of their their worldview? That's a great question. I think I fell in quickly with people who were similar to me. And usually when you're in groups of people who are similar to you, you don't spend a lot of time talking about your presuppositions necessarily. You you end up more, maybe a lot of stupid, fun conversations, but a lot of conversations more about like implications sometimes, you know, like what does it mean to to live well? I'm not sure we phrased it that way, but sort of like, who are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to choose? Like, what are the right what are the right kinds of things? Mostly refracted through politics, or maybe not mostly, but politics was definitely a piece of it, you know, kind of Democrat, Republican types of things or policy types of things, sometimes ethical types of things. I was in a a program for freshmen, you had to apply into it. There was sort of an intensive course through the humanities of the Western world. So you did philosophy and literature and um, politics. So a lot of really fun conversations over, you know, the the classic texts of the Western tradition. So that was fun too. So a little more detached from everyday life, but still interesting. I remember trying to read John Locke and just like throwing it across the room because I was like, what is he even (laughs) saying? It was pressing the edges. It was what I needed. What What I'd encountered at high school was actually too easy for me. And so it, it, led me into a false confidence. I I was encountering some texts and some ideas that were stretching for me and helpful for me. And um, Mm. it was just good. It was, it was rich, but it was also really, really destabilizing. So on the one hand, I look back on it now and I see the trajectory that I've been on and I feel so thankful for the, the ways that I've grown as a thinker and my ability to approach texts and approach ideas. But in the first throes of it, ultimately I was feeling just a little bit lost a lot of my peers had been trained already in seminar contexts, uh, already interacting with primary sources. Uh, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And so I was flying around on instinct and my lack of training, which ultimately gave really checkered results <laughs> academically. So you were, you were becoming a critical thinker and yeah. perhaps you're, presumptions were being questioned, destabilized, whether it would be through academic study or even that one moment where your presumption was questioned as to whether or not Christianity, was it really all that ignorant and silly or, or, or is there something more? So you're moving through this process of, of learning and growing uh, as we all do <laughs> when you expose yourself to other ideas and right. other people, right? Somehow those engagements and those interactions cause you sometimes to stop and question. Yeah, and they should. What else happened at Yale where you, that you were 
were you being further destabilized by ideas <laughs> and people or, or were you being more affirmed in your atheism? I think I was being affirmed in my atheism, but destabilized in my position as a thinker. Mm. I was just immature. Um, I wasn't probably as ready as I should have been, which is okay. And people there were legitimately smarter than me, which is also okay. But one of the big rocks of my freshman year was the fact that my really important romantic relationship with um, my girlfriend at the time just exploded. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. Um, but it also, it was a contributing factor to my emotional <laughs> slump, you know, teenage breakups are hard. Um, I resorted to plenty of drinking. I mean, not like irresponsibly, not like not going to class or not doing my homework, but just sort of, that's what seemed to be the acceptable way to deal with sadness. And by the time I came back to the beginning of the spring semester, which is really the dead of winter, January, I was cold for the first time. I was heartbroken. I wasn't sure that I belonged at this place. It was mm. just a, it was a lot of instability. I cannot underplay too how growing up in Southern California does not prepare you to be cold for the first time. <laughs> I was just so miserable. I was miserable. So you were being thrown off your feet, uh, yeah. not only with regard to your thinking a little bit, but also relationally. That's always, yeah. like you say, difficult and destabilizing. And and uh, so what happened then? So I happened, so I was just, what, what else are you supposed to do? And <laughs> sort of like, I, I needed some identity. And I remember trying on, I'm like, oh, well, should I go to the gym more? Now I'm really lazy. Like, should I write for the school newspaper? Now it doesn't even interest me. I'm not smart enough. So I, I just kept going to class. You know, it's like you put one foot in front of the other. And I happened to be in a lecture one day where they were introducing us to Rene Descartes, you know, the old dead French guy who uh, coined the phrase, I think, therefore I am, and developed from that phrase, you know, a whole proof for the existence of God. So I remember sitting in the audience, hearing the lecture, sort of explaining how Descartes was working through his thought. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is a really stupid proof for the existence of God. Like, I don't buy it. And I, I still don't buy it, really. Um, but while I was sitting there, I did think, what if there are other good proofs for the existence of God, which immediately made me tense up and sort of want to push it away? Like, no, that's not what we think about. Faith, Christianity, that's for stupid bigots. Like, we don't go there. But at the same time, I couldn't really shake the interest that had been stirred in me. I was like, well, shouldn't I know the better ones even so I could refute them? Or what if there's something, what if there's something there? I don't know. I just felt like sort of like a good angel, bad angel, but atheist angels i'm not really sure exactly so it's pulling me so i'm a millennial right the the natural thing to do when you have serious and secretive questions is to ask the internet you know so i would go back to my room open my gigantic dell laptop you know you need like an upper body workout thing just to lift those <laughs> and i would just type religious search terms into google doing that whole internet rabbit trail thing you know, where you you don't even know how you ended up in a certain place. You're just following hyperlinks and reading different stuff. And I definitely did that way more than I should have. I definitely did that way more than my French homework, for example, and my grade absolutely reflected that. Um, and that 
was a really interesting time. I was encountering ideas, but I also sort of kept coming back to reading about Jesus, like stories about Jesus. Like, I don't know if they were, I was reading the gospels or even talking about the gospels, but like his character was becoming more interesting to me. Like, oh, like the, he's clearly quite intelligent. There's a lot of moral dignity here. I can see why he's an interesting person. I felt sort of drawn to him. I also remember reading a lot of articles, maybe not a lot, but at least articles that made an impression on me on like the reliability, the historical reliability of the resurrection account. I just had, oh, I guess I always assumed out of hand that that was ridiculous. When I was reading different defenses of it, I was like, whoa, there's, there's some interesting evidence here. I'm not saying I believe it, but there's some really interesting evidence here. So kind of dancing around mostly the person of Jesus with some other random topics thrown in. But I really quickly with that, I was like, well, I want to marry a woman someday. Like I'm, am I even allowed to be interested in Jesus as a, as a character? I'm not saying I want to like be a religious person, but isn't this against everything? Now, the only two Christians I knew at Yale or at least people who identified as Christians, were these two girls who were dating each other. And one of them was actually training en route to be a Lutheran minister. I knew this because she and I were in marching band together, which is, you know, the lamest thing you could possibly admit to in some contexts, but it's true. So I remember thinking, why should go to my friends and just ask them what they think? Like, clearly, they don't think that. Otherwise, their whole lives wouldn't be the way that it is. So I went to them. And they were so, I mean, they were like sweet, lovely girls. And I was sort of like, well, this doesn't make sense to me. How does it make sense to you? And functionally, they were like, well, it's all been a big misunderstanding. Like the Bible actually supports monogamous same-sex relationships. And I was like, really? Like, I would, like if you believe that, you're smart people. You're here. Like maybe, maybe it's true. And so they, I remember them giving me a sort of a packet of information explaining how the Bible actually affirmed monogamous same-sex relationships. I was kind of excited. I'm like, Ooh, if this is in the Bible, that's super interesting. That opens up some other doors. So I remember taking it back to my room and reading through it. I love packets to deconstruct and like look for evidence and stuff like this. So I remember reading it and finding it pretty persuasive. Like, oh, these are really good arguments. I could see how this makes sense. Like maybe they're really onto something. This is good. But I also thought, well, I probably should like actually read the text of the Bible it's talking about. I mean, I'm not like a Bible scholar, but it does seem in general that you should read the primary sources. So I didn't have a Bible, right? So I just pulled up these texts on my computer screen. I remember looking at my computer screen, down at the packet, comparing, working through, and then ultimately it's like, well, I don't think these arguments look as good actually compared to the original text as they did just on their own. Like, it's really nice that these girls want to believe that, but uh, this just seems to have too many problems to get around. And I remember feeling, um, on the one hand, sort of relieved, like I didn't want the Bible to actually have a hold on me, um, but two, also sort of stupid for even having pursued it and kind of disappointed. And I was just throwing it in my cheap dorm trash can and being like, whatever, like this isn't even... This isn't even a thing that should be pursued. 
you know, and I'm pretty sure I just never talked to the girls about it again. And they were polite and didn't harass me about it, you know. So you started reading the Bible. You started becoming interested in the person of Christ, which it's kind of easy to do when you start really reading about the person of Christ and reading. Did, were you reading scripture where he's talking I or? I don't really know. I know, I know I was engaging in stories about him. So I must've been reading at least pieces of scripture, but they were probably embedded in other people's articles that were maybe interpreting them or talking about them. That's my biggest guess. I don't, I mm. don't ever remember just pulling up like a Bible website and reading out of the gospel of Matthew. So I think it was all in, refracted to me through other means but still there were the stories you know I, I remember reading the story about all these different opponents of Jesus coming up to him trying to trick him and he would just shut them down and I loved that mm. I was like look at this guy he can't be caught I'd like to pause from our story then take a moment to tell you about another podcast from the C.S. Lewis Institute called Questions That Matter with Randy Newman. Every two weeks, Randy has a fascinating conversation with one of today's Christian faith leaders, and he talks with his guests about a wide range of discipleship topics, from evangelism to growing in faith to talking about their recent books. You can find and listen to Questions That Matter by going to cslewisinstitute.org forward slash podcast categories. Now back to our podcast. So, you know, it seems like you would be in a very interesting crossroads, looking at some things intellectually, finding them interesting, it's pulling your interest, but yet on a personal level, finding things about Christianity that may not cohere with your lifestyle. So, right, with, with what but, I wanted for my future, what I assumed yeah. was going to make me happy. But in a, in a sense, as someone who's per, a pursuer of truth, as you were, and yeah. you can't uh, kind of unsee what you have seen or unhear or unread or whatever, what you were right, had right. already started to being exposed to, what did you do right. with that? You had a choice of moving forward to continue to explore or to disengage. Well, I was confronted with a different circumstance. I kind of let it go a little bit. Also, frankly, I was behind on my homework. But I remember being in the, the bedroom of one of my acquaintances. So she wasn't necessarily a friend. Like we didn't hang out a lot. We'd have breakfast a lot together, but we weren't buddies. But for whatever reason, this day, I went to her room. She had a bookshelf next to her doorway. And one of my favorite hobbies is looking at people's bookshelves and judging them, right? And so I was looking through her bookshelf, and I knew that she was a non-practicing Catholic. She had a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I thought, oh, I want to read that book. Like, of course, I should be reading books and not just the internet. But I was embarrassed by my interest. Like, I didn't want to ask my friend to borrow the book. I didn't want to have conversations with her. I didn't want her to know that I was even remotely thinking about this. So I just stole the book off her shelf. Right? She wasn't looking. It's a small volume. It fit right into my shoulder bag. So I just took it. Again, I didn't also believe in like any moral transcendence. So it was like, if, if you're not really hurting anyone, 
which still your book is kind of, obviously it's her property, but anyway, if you're not hurting anyone, you don't get caught, no big deal. So it was while I was reading, so I just started reading this book. I remember being roughly halfway through it one day between classes. And I remember, and I don't remember what chapter I was in, I don't remember the paragraph, even the point that Lewis was making, but I do remember sitting there in the middle of reading it and suddenly being over. I don't know how to describe it other than like overwhelmed with the sure knowledge that God existed. Not like a generic store brand God, but like the God who created everything, who made me. Like I Mm. very much the God who was holy. Like I didn't know that vocabulary word, but that was the pressing sense. Like not only does he exist, but his existence in perfection has implications really the front edge was just this like god exists and i am very bad <laughs> arrogant i was a liar i was sexually immoral I made fun of people i cheated on things i was reading a stolen book like all of the chips were pushed into the into the guilty category that that was the thing that i felt With that, I mean, again, I, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine recently who's been an atheist for a long time. He's like, tell me how you converted. I'm like, Dave, I don't really know how to explain it to you <laughs> on some level. Like it, the Lord moved. Um, I also really understood right in that moment when I was feeling my sin in front of a holy God, that part of the reason Jesus had come was to place himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me, that he would end up absorbing it. And the only way to be safe was to run towards him, not away from him. I'm pretty sure that's not what Lewis had written on that page. It just understood. And I remember thinking, I don't want to become a Christian. That's so lame. Like Christians are lame. But I also was sitting there thinking, well, I can't pretend this isn't true just because it's inconvenient for my life. Like, that also seems really stupid. Like, I'm not going to get a better deal than this. Like, I got to take this deal. Very transactional on some level. It wasn't like, oh, I'm falling in love with the beauty of God. I'm sort of like, oh, like. Right. Yeah. um, And so I remember I didn't have like a nice pastor, campus minister sitting there with me and like, well, I'll lead you in prayer. But I kind of knew I need to pray. So I closed my eyes and I was like, fine, I'll become a Christian. (laughs) Just like, uh, I guess I'll go to class. Like, I didn't really know what else to do, you know? It's kind of, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis's story where he claims himself to be the, the most reluctant convert of all England. Uh, you know, it's not I something. Story he... later, I was like, oh yeah, I resonate with that. Your story is very similar. My old dead Anglican friend. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Lewis. <laughs> so that was stunning for you. And I imagine it was surprising for those around you. Yeah. Um, yes. So, so you went, you went on to class. Were you a bit subversive about your Christian new Christian identity? Is it something that I you... didn't, I didn't know what to like the immediate aftermath. I was just sort of like, okay, well, I didn't remember what class I went to. It was probably one of my humanities classes, like a seminar where you just go talk about your reading or whatever. 
But I know later that day I saw a little advertisement for Yale Students for Christ was going to have a Valentine's party that Saturday. So I remember seeing that advertisement and thinking, I didn't even know we had a Yale Students for Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so Saturday the 14th, Valentine's Day happened. And I showed up at this party pretending I was there by accident because I still didn't even know what to do with myself. So I was like, oh, I just stumbled in here. The first person I saw was this other freshman who uh, was in my section, my literature section. And back in the fall when we had been talking about the Bible as literature, I mean, I had a field day just sort of like stomping all over the Bible. And he had been in that section with me. And so when he saw me walk in, his face did sort of the like, uh-oh thing. And I saw him and recognized him and thought, oh, I'm in the right place. <laughs> so I went to them. I was like, hey, so um, I became a Christian two days ago. And they were all like, what? And they just sort of passed me to the other freshmen. And I was like, hi, here I am. And they were like, what? They didn't really know what to do with me. And so they were like, um, okay, so do you want to come to freshman prayer on Monday? And I was like, sure. And then they're like, do you want to come to freshman Bible study on Tuesday? I was like, sure. It's <laughs> just like, I just followed them around like a baby quail. Like copying them, you know, sort of like, oh, okay, so this is what we do. Like we, we raise our hands when we sing. Um, we read the Bible together. We don't ever cuss. Our music is pretty bad. Like, you know, just like the things you needed to be like a young, a young Christian. Um, I started spending a lot of time with them, not no time with my other friends, but definitely like the excitement of discovering what the gospel was overwhelmed me. I, it's crazy to me now thinking about as a 17 year old, I thought that Christianity was just for stupid people when like, Christianity is one of the, the deepest and greatest intellectual traditions that has literally ever existed. I think it was such a gift to me that the first Christians I got to do life and discipleship with were thoughtful academic people, not perfect people and young people like me, but, but people who really did care that, that it was true, not just, you know, this is what my parents did or, right. or any of those types of excuses. Now, it took me a long time to understand that my faith is so much more than just like memorizing a book. That actually our relationship with God is demonstrated in the lives that he wants to transform. He, that took a while. I, you know, it's like you learn math, you just like learn math facts. You learn history, you learn history facts. So it's sort of like Christian, like learn Christian facts. So it was slow on the uptake in a lot of ways. Like my life was so deeply imperfect as an early disciple. I mean, not that it's perfect now. A lot of failure, a lot of stupidity, but also real joy, like good answers to hard questions and good admissions to when the answers weren't sure. Such, for me, learning about where the Bible came from and what a trustworthy document it is, especially when you compare it to any other document in its class or time, like that just gave me such a deep confidence to be able to pursue it, even in the places where there was confusion or tension, like especially around what it had to say about sexuality, which is something functionally I've been working out for the past 18 years. So it was an intellectual explosion for me. Um, but mm. 
but also ultimately it just came back to the person of Christ. You know, I had a moment early in my discipleship where my ex-girlfriend functionally offered to get back with me. And I could have left the good answers. I could have left my new Christian friends as great as they were because I did still love her in many ways. But ultimately what I couldn't leave was Christ. Like I couldn't leave him. So it's not just an intellectual thing, but that intellectual piece has been, it's been really helpful for me in a lot of ways. You found the substance, the riches, like you say, the depth of Christian thinkers in the Christian worldview that many have no idea about. It, it's for some uh, and seems I don't blame very them, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> the way that the way that Christianity is lived out in our country would not ever give you a clue as to the depth of its intellectual rigor and joy. What's comforting to me is that when the Lord talks to his people in the scriptures, um, they're just always failing. <laughs> so I'm like, well, we're not unique <laughs> in the fact that we fail. I think our failures are grievous, and, I, and I, I do lament them. But I don't blame people when they think of Christianity as all kinds of silly things, um, because a lot of us have made it look silly. You have come such a long way, it sounds like, in your life. I mean, having that perspective on one side of thinking Christianity is silly for ignorant people, it's just nonsense, now to the place where you're actually engaged in the riches of the of the intellectual depth of the Christian worldview and, and deep in your relationship with Christ. I'm so impressed that you actually, at a very pivotal point in your life, actually chose Christ and whatever relationship you had with him and whatever he offered you was so much more important than your personal choice of how you would have rather lived your life. But but it was you wanted to live how Christ wanted you to live because at some point you made that kind of conversion over to, from pleasing yourself to pleasing Christ. That yeah, speaks to the bumpy. fact that it's never easy. That that decision and that that's an ongoing choice for all of us all of the time. You know, fighting yeah. against our own desires uh, for the sake of of the one who saved us. Right, the one who is that barrier, the one who loved us so. Um, that gospel that you spoke of is transforming when you understand the depths and riches of His love for yeah. you. Uh, wow, you, your, your story has taken a great uh, a 180 change. Um, well, the and Lord has I, a good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would imagine you would have never seen yourself as not being even, in this place. No, not even remotely. Not even because remotely. I think you, you referenced at the very beginning when you talked about who you are and what you do that you are actually engaged in some kind of ministry. It's not that this is yeah. just, you know, for you. you. You believe in it and you live it and you love it so much that you want others to know Christ in the same way that you do. Is that, I mean, tell I me do. about I that. Absolutely. I want everyone to know that there's a God who made them and forgives them and who wants to actually, he wants us to thrive. You know, and sometimes we just see the things God says no to and we miss his bigger yeses. But I also, I want to approach the people in my life who do not know the Lord with the respect that they deserve. 
you know, I don't, we need to prove, we need to show the evidence that God is, that God is good, not because he's shown himself bad, but because we've shown, we've not done a good job representing him. I I always want to approach the people in my life invitationally and, um, and taking them seriously. I take seriously the objections and the arguments of other people. Like they've, they've got really valid experiences. They've got really valid thoughts. And I think some of the defensiveness amongst Christians, it isn't particularly harmful. I really, I really want people to know who he is. Um, and if I'm not, I don't actually love the person in front of me. I don't think there's any way for that to happen. I think there's deep wisdom there. Also a heart for others and, and probably a lot of experience in engaging, especially at the college level when you're, you're a campus minister of sorts. Yeah, I am a campus minister. Um, I'm not on campus with students right now because of my PhD and my role with the theological team, I do different trainings of our staff and stuff. But honestly, even, I mean, the street that I live on, I mean, none of these, none of my neighbors know or trust the Lord. Um, But I love them deeply and I have a real relationship with them. And it's an opportunity to learn from them and also share with them. They're, they're delightful. It's not just a thing that happens, you know, in college, we're all allowed to talk about big ideas. Like actually other people want to talk about big ideas too, but they want to talk about them when they know that you actually care what they think too. I think that's, that's profound and so needed among our conversation and on our walk today as Christians. You do engage with those who don't believe and, um, and if someone is a curious skeptic, actually listening in and listening to you and to your story, uh, what would you advise someone who actually may be a closet, curious <laughs> skeptic like you were at one time, uh, perhaps looking on the internet and all sorts of places, yeah. trying to figure out what Christianity is? Uh, what, how, what, would you, what would you say to a curious skeptic? On some level, it so depends because personality-wise, we're all very different. The things that draw us are different. But you, you cannot go wrong with looking to Christ. Like, who is he? Who are his claims? Do they hold up? We have all the tools of the professional historian to be able to tell whether things are strong arguments or weak arguments, probable or improbable. And I think if you if you examine Christ, who he is historically, who he is ethically, he just holds up. And he's he came for us. Like he didn't he didn't have to come. He came for us. I would I would even encourage people, frankly, to pray. <laughs> I don't think it hurts to ask God, like, give me your spirit. Help me understand. I mean you might feel stupid. You might not really believe it, but um the Lord loves to answer weak and silly prayers sometimes. You know, he uh, he came to save the lost and to meet the seeker and to answer questions and to open the door to people who knock. So I think we just got to we just got to keep knocking. Perhaps um perhaps even read mere Christianity. Yeah, <laughs> like, maybe. Or like perhaps read something great like Reason for God by Tim Keller or 
Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. There's some really good contemporary books that talk about some of these things as well. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And we will definitely include all of your recommendations in the episode notes. Is there anything else about your story that you would like to include here as we wrap up? (laughs) Uh, Just that I don't, I don't want anyone to hear my story and laminate it onto anyone else. Um, We each have our own experience in front of the Lord. And what happened in my life isn't anything that I achieved or anything I should really be praised for. It was just the movement of the Lord. And so if we're, if we want the Lord to move in our life, we need to look for him and ask for it. And if we want the Lord to move in other people's lives, we need to ask for it. We need to be prayerful people and, and expect that God's ways are going to be a little different than we might choose, but that he's still good. I think uh, at the end of the day, it looks like you actually found the one who is true, good, and beautiful. I I know you were searching for that, and and there is a a depth and a richness, a riches in Christ that can really be found nowhere else. And so I thank you for your story and for uh, the way that you've been transparent and uh, with your life and just is deeply vulnerable so i think that that's incredibly important too as we as we approach other people and is that is that we we demonstrate a life trans transformed but also we're not afraid to show and to tell uh, the ways that we were the ways that we still struggle and the ways that 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 the lord has brought him unto ourselves his self so Um, Thank you for your story today, Rachel. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Side B Podcast to hear Rachel's story. You can find out more about her from reading her book, Born Again This Way, or at her blog, www.rachelgilson.com. I'll put the link in the episode notes for you. For questions and feedback about this episode, you can reach me by email at the Side B Podcast at cslewisinstitute.org. I hope you enjoyed it uh, and that you'll subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll see where another skeptic flips the record of their life.